Before we kick things off, you should know that this episode deals with grief, hospitalization, and death. If this raises any issues for you, there are people you can talk to. Reach out to Lifeline on 131114. If you're outside of Australia, head to lifeline.org.au. I find it quite difficult when people ask me how many children I have because I always want to say five. In life, sometimes death can be hard to talk about. But I often don't say five because I don't want to upset the person I'm talking to. What do you say to someone who's experienced a significant loss? And I think they might be upset if I then have to go on with this horrible story. Maybe you say that thing that everyone seems programmed to say. You know, I'm sorry for your loss. Or maybe you don't say anything. Maybe it makes you feel uncomfortable. If somebody asks me how many children I have and I say two, I then go into an inner turmoil because I feel like I wish I had the courage to say five because I have five children. But why? I think in our society, I don't think we do death very well even though it's the only thing we all know it is going to definitely happen to us. It's not really something which is spoken about. I suppose in our culture, we sort of don't want to look at death. Death but is often why? something which is hidden away, or, or I don't know, somebody dies and then their body's taken away straight away. So I guess the question becomes, what do we do? It's only by speaking up that you can break down a taboo. health. I'm Joe Koning. On today's show, the story of Sophie Smith. It's the year 2000, and in Sydney, a girl named Sophie meets a guy called Ash. Just before the start of the Sydney Olympics. They hang out together, go see a few events. Ash and I basically fell in love and we hung out together loads. We got to know each other. We met each other's friends. And that was the start of a yeah, beautiful relationship. Five years later, they were married. And then about a year later, we discovered the incredible miracle of being pregnant with triplets. And we went along and saw these amazing three little heartbeats on the screen. And I thought that I was the luckiest person alive. About 15 weeks into the pregnancy, Sophie had a few issues. She goes to the doctors, but they reassure her that everything's fine. Her next game was at 20 weeks. And again, everything looked like it was going okay. And then? My waters broke when I was 21 weeks pregnant. And I went to the hospital. They confirmed that I'd had a premature rupture of membranes. And I was told that I would go into labor within 24 hours and that all my babies were going to die. I was transferred to the antenatal ward in the hospital and it was just a waiting game, really. In the antenatal ward... Sophie tried to hold off on the pregnancy for as long as she could, but five days later, at just 21 weeks and five days, her first son, Henry, was born. They were told he probably wouldn't be born alive, but he was. I've always 
felt great comfort knowing that Henry spent his whole life in my arms. He, he, he lay on my chest. He held his tiny little hand squeezed onto mine. I felt his heart beating. He gave a tiny cry when he was born. And he lived for one hour. In that short time, Sophie and Ash decided to make the most of what little time they had with their son. I knew then that, you know, his life was going to be extremely short, but it was his life. And so we had to make the most of that time. And I think we did. Time sort of stood still for that hour. And um, it was just the three of us. And we couldn't believe the love that we felt for this tiny baby. He weighed 450 grams. We had Henry alive for one hour. Um, we, we spent two days and two nights with Henry. Ash gave Henry a, a bath and dressed Henry and um, it was really quite amazing for me to watch this amazing, incredible bond between father and son. We just held him close and I wanted to make sure that I would never forget him. So I just spent my time looking into at his beautiful face and how it was so similar to his dad and... Um, talking to him and just creating memories I guess with him um, I, I do remember asking one of the nurses what's the normal time to keep your dead baby and she said just whatever you want is fine story you have told me. This is Marion Creswick. You know, as an anthropologist, I'm always situated in a position of looking at things comparatively, whether that's in time or between cultures. She's a medical anthropologist. Yeah, I did want to add, uh, just to give you my position, is that I'm a Lord Calvin Adam Smith Fellow at the School of Interdisciplinary Studies at the University of Glasgow. That means her job is to study the culture of medicine. There is this tendency to pathologize grief, where certain behaviors after somebody you love dies, you are expected to behave through these stages or in these ways for prescribed amounts of time and if you don't do it in the let's call it the right way you become stigmatized and, and, and socially isolated but the thing about that is there are real repercussions to that because there's the expectation that everybody approaches and understands death and dying in the same standardized way and those who don't are deviant especially when you consider people from different cultures or different time periods. Different people at different times and in different cultures have had intimate contact with dying in dead bodies for extended periods of time, and that was not seen as a pathology. Rather, this was seen as a continuing relationship with a person, or as a way of saying goodbye. Many people, after they've experienced the death of a loved one, it's not unusual for them to express regret of not spending time in the room with the person's body. Which, as a medical anthropologist, Marion has seen a lot of. 
you know, my job is to help clinicians better care for patients as they near end of life. And I see a lot of tensions in trying to do this. And I think often there's an assumption that if we just follow a set of procedures, if we can just figure out what the right thing to do is, then death will become less of the other. But maybe we'll never get there. Maybe we'll never know how to deal with death. And maybe that's okay. To some degree, death is always going to remain a mystery. And trying to standardize approaches to caring for people who are at end of life or trying to standardize ways of behaving. I see all of this as really interesting ways to grapple with what is always going to be relatively unknown. For Sophie, the way she acted helped her deal with the loss of her son. I think it helps because when you have a baby who dies after one hour, you have no memories with that baby. And it helped create memories. And so we did keep him for two days. And then after that time, um, I think it was Ash who said, I think it's time that we let him go. While I had him in my arms, I could still be his mum in a way. But then when he was taken away from me, that's when I felt the enormity of the grief. When he was with me, I felt comforted. Um, he was still my baby. But when he was taken away, that's when the, I felt extremely distressed. During this whole time, Sophie was still pregnant with another two children. And with every day that passed, their odds of surviving increased. So after Henry died, Sophie hunkered down. You know, made myself at home in the back in the antenatal ward, and I thought that I was going to be there for another 16 weeks. In the end, Sophie would make it to 21 weeks. On that day, I just felt like, you know, we'd, we'd come from being told our babies had a zero chance of survival to being told that if they were born at 24 weeks, they had a 50% chance of survival. And that was just so incredible to me to have gone from 0% to 50%. That night, Sophie's waters broke again. Her two children, Evan and Jasper, arrived by emergency caesarean and were whisked away into the newborn intensive care unit. Well, we had a good few days, but then when they were seven days old, Evan began to get extremely ill with an infection. And when he was 10 days old, he suffered from a, a severe brain hemorrhage. And we were told that, um, that really it was the fairest on him to, to let, him, let him die. Sophie remembers being there for Evan as he died. She remembers holding him. But her third son, Jasper, was still alive and was still fighting for his life. We actually didn't really have any special time with Evan. We um, gave him a bath and put some clothes on him and they took him away and I never saw him again. And I actually um, have always struggled with Evan more than with Henry and Jasper. And I think it's because I didn't have that um, special time with Evan. After Evan died, Sophie and Ash focused on caring for Jasper who for a while was doing great. We did have some beautiful memories, but um, it was also incredibly stressful because um, he suffered from chronic lung disease and um, he suffered repeated lung collapses. And each time his lungs collapsed, we would rush into the hospital and, and, and be with Jasper and then he'd pull through and we'd, we'd think that we'd just overcome another hurdle. And it, these would be um, times that we would 
tell him about when he was grown up. But um, unfortunately, when he was 58 days old, his lungs collapsed again. And this time, nothing more could be done for him. After Jasper passed away, Sophie and Ash removed the tape from around his face that was holding his tubes in place. They took out his needles, they bathed him and dressed him, and they cared for him. And after spending countless hours with their son, they got in the car and drove home. We drove home in silence, dry-eyed. Um, and as soon as we got to my front door, I turned around to Ash. We looked at each other, and I don't know if I even had to say to Ash or whether he just knew, I can't remember. But we just went, got back in the car and we drove straight back to the hospital. And we went back to the newborn intensive care unit and said, we need our baby. The nurses at the hospital took Sophie and Ash to a special room where they could spend time with their son. I just needed him in my arms. There's a double bed in that room and I took Jasper out of his crib and I lay with him and Ash lay with us. We laid him on my pillow and I just kissed him all night and held him all night. I probably fell asleep for, I don't know, a half an hour here and a half an hour there, but each time I woke up with my baby in my arms and it was absolutely beautiful. At the funeral for her children, Sophie remembers arriving to the chapel and taking her seat in the first pew. Just in front of her was a tiny coffin. They were in one coffin together and their little coffin was up the front of the chapel. And I had this overwhelming urge to go and pick up the coffin and hold it on my lap for the ceremony. Because to me, it felt so natural to have them on my lap and so unnatural to have them placed on a bench at the front of the chapel away from everybody. But in that instance, I didn't voice my desire to have my baby's coffin on my lap because I didn't think that I would be allowed to or that it was the, the sort of um, acceptable thing to do. And I had to sort of slot in with the, what's expected of me. And this wasn't the only thing she felt this way about. It's not really acceptable to weep and wail loudly. Um, we are taught to sort of restrain ourselves. And yet to me, I found the noise that came from me quite shocking. Because of the sort of rules and of our society, uh, I felt like I had to behave myself in a certain way. And yet there's other decisions I made, like other people have been surprised and said to me, oh, I can't believe that you did that. Was that a bit spooky or, you know, ooh, dead, a dead body? I think that we've been taught um, a fear of death. In part, it's because we're not shown how to, how to sit with people who are dying. Again, Marion Kraswick, medical anthropologist from the University of Glasgow. We're not taught to sit with people who are dead uh, because in many ways our values and our culture is that there isn't any meaning. There isn't anything good necessarily. It's just hard. This all plays into the idea that we are a death-denying culture, a society where death breeds uncomfortability, 
But how much truth does that idea really hold? This notion that we are a death-denying culture, where, which we hear all of the time, I'm not entirely sure has the same salience uh, as it used to, or actually if it ever even did. In the medieval times, there was a famous book called the Ars Morendi. Translated, this means the art of dying. And it was a set of rules or precepts on, on how to die well to ensure that you made it into the afterlife. And it, it, it highlights that death was understood to be a, a part of life. And after, you know, people would come from all around to be in the room with a person as they died. And then after death, the body would be washed and, and then often memorials would happen where the body was in the room uh, and visits would happen over a series of days. This way of dying, at home and surrounded by the ones you loved, it was a practice that bred familiarity, a familiarity that has been somewhat lost over time. With the Industrial Revolution and changes to, to families and communities and the rise of medicine and the promise to extend life indefinitely and increasing specialization and fabulous treatments that began to really extend life in ways that we'd never seen before. All of this created changes to, to how we understood and, and organized death. It increasingly became something uh, separate from everyday life and dirty and sequestered and something to be avoided. Although it should be said, not to be avoided by all. Two years after she left the hospital, Sophie fell pregnant again. This time, she gave birth to a healthy, happy baby, Owen. But then, when Owen was six months old, they received more bad news. That was when Ash was um, diagnosed with grade four GBM brain cancer. Ash was told on diagnosis that he, without treatment, would have about three weeks to live. And with treatment, um, he probably would, was looking at about a year. As Ash was going through chemo, the couple also went through IVF. Their son Harvey was born two years later. And Ash? Ash was determined to prove his doctors wrong. And he would. He'd live for another seven years. But unfortunately, the time came when uh, the doctors could no longer operate because there were too many tumours. And um, Ash had about six months after that. The last months of Ash's life were hard on the family, but they were able to be played out at home on their own terms something Sophia's always been grateful for. For me, it was um, very um, special to be able to be his primary carer and not to have to hand that over to um, strangers. And that was possible, of course, with the help of the palliative care team who would come into our house and, and help me. I was lucky that our situation allowed me to have Ash with us at home and I could be with him right until the very end. Because the whole point is we want to try and give the families their best end-of-life care experience that we possibly can so that hopefully they can have a healthy bereavement. This is Claudia Verdon, Senior Lecturer for the Faculty of Health at the University of Technology, Sydney. She's also completing a PhD focusing on palliative care, a profession to which death is no stranger. I think one of the nicest things about palliative care is the focus on on living and helping people live well, despite the complex situation they're in. And also being able to think about quite unique and innovative approaches to complex situations to try and make the best of it. 
For people like Sophie, palliative care teams are there to help them through these situations. Everyone, of course, will be distressed after a patient's death, but it's about trying to work with that family member so they feel that they that the best care was provided to their loved one, but also to them after, throughout and after a patient's death. For a lot of people, being able to choose how you leave this world and where you leave it from is important. And it's important because of how much we've come to value our autonomy. I think good palliative care occurs when you see that a patient still is able to have choice and autonomy in their world. They're able to maintain their own sense of self, self and, and identity, that their family are feeling involved and supported as much as they want to be in that situation, and that people are well informed about the reality of what they're facing and that the patient can then make the choices about the types of care and locations of care that are, are right for them. And the, the complexity of that is that people may make a choice that you, you personally wouldn't think is, is necessarily the right one, but it's, it's the choice that suits them and their life, and that's the most important thing. But the need for autonomy is one that has only developed recently. The requirement for autonomy, I would argue, has, as our culture changes, become of increasing importance. Marion Kraswick again. A good death has always been important, and I think... It will continue to be one of the defining principles of who we choose to be as a culture um, and even as humans, I would argue, because how we organize dying tells us a great deal about, you know, the values and the priorities we collectively believe in. This concept of a good death may sound a little odd at first, a string of words at odds with itself, full of tension. How exactly does one die well? The conventional understanding of what a good death entails is very much about this expressiveness of you being able to do it your own way and the kind of foundational principle underneath that is autonomy. So a good death has always been, I would argue in the 20th century anyway, a autonomous endeavor. For Sophie, being able to care for Ash at home gave her family a great deal. For one, her kids were always around their father, even towards the end, and death was never hidden from them. They always knew that Daddy had brain cancer. Um, they would always come with us to appointments to the hospital. Um, they would spend um, a lot of time with their dad. They would, um, as his brain sort of um, degenerated, um, he couldn't really engage in much conversation, uh, but he loved to colour in and the boys loved colouring in as well. So they actually spent time together all sitting around a colouring book and colouring together. They would play very simple board games together or they would um, just watch cartoons together. And so they actually um, weren't frightened um, really of what was happening to Ash. And I think because they weren't um, kept away from it, they were able to come on the journey with us, and that took the fear out of it. Caring for Ash at home also meant that when he died, Sophie was there for him, just like she had been with her children. To me, it wasn't a, a conscious decision. So in relation to Sophie's story, I think you described that she stayed at home with her husband overnight after he'd died. And I would say that in a community setting, that's quite common, or, or it's certainly not uncommon. It just was what I needed to do. Um, and supporting that is, is, is quite straightforward to do. And, and some people may stay uh, with their loved one at home in the community setting for more than that 12 hours. It, it certainly can be a couple of days. When Ash died, 
Sophie knew exactly how she wanted to spend their last night together. Ash was in a hospital bed, pushed up against my bed. Um, and so every night I would sleep um, sort of in his hospital bed with him, or sort of half in his bed, half in my bed. And so like I did every night, I climbed back into bed with Ash and um, had his arm around me and, and held him and slept with him like I always did. I do feel that as a society, we, we don't talk about death openly. Uh, it would be great to be able to open that conversation quite generally through different media opportunities, through different um, other social constructs so that we can actually feel comfortable about this care that can be provided, that provides so many positives in a situation that is difficult. To me, it was my last night with my husband and I found it incredibly comforting. I actually found that I couldn't leave the room. I didn't want to leave him. With palliative care, what it can do when it's functioning at its best is provide an understanding that there is, there is something happening during that time that still has value. And, and we can't stop death happening. We know that it will happen across our society. And yet we still, you know, we still don't feel comfortable with actually looking at palliative care services and what, what they can provide to help and assist throughout that time. I'm really glad that in those moments for myself, I was able to do what I wanted, which was uh, sleep in the arms of my husband. Um, and I'm so glad that I didn't in that moment think about what was expected of me um, and do what I thought other people would, might prefer um, but to follow my heart. You've been listening to Think Health. The show is supported by the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER. Think Health is produced on Gadigal land for the Eora Nation. Thanks to Sophie Smith, Marion Creswick and Claudia Burden, as well as Shane Anderson and Jake Morecambe for help with the episode. If you like the show and want to hear more, head to 2SER.com. If you're on your podcast app, hit subscribe and tell us what you think. Until next time, I'm Joe Koning.